Welcome to the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. You are about to listen to the Soulful CXO Podcast with Dr. Rebecca Wynn. These conversations focus on the intersection of technology, business, and humanity, exploring how these three areas impact each other. Dr. Wynn interviews guests, including business leaders, entrepreneurs, and experts in various fields to share insights and experiences on cybersecurity, risk management, and leadership. The podcast aims to provide a fresh perspective on how technology can be leveraged to create positive change in the world. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Soulful CXO. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Wynn. We are pleased to have with us today, Artie Raman. Artie is the award-winning founder and CEO of Portal 26, formerly known as Titanium, which is award-winning enterprise gen AI governance, responsible use, and data security platform. Her prior roles include head of UX Enterprise Group and head of competitive intelligence at Symantec, VP of marketing and North American sales at Modelo Security Solutions, and VP of products and alliances at Risk Vision. Her awards include being a finalist for 2023 Cyber Person of the Year, named the 2023 SVBJ Women of Influence, 2023 Data Power Women of the Year, 2022 Titan Business Awards for Female CEO of the Year, Female Entrepreneur of the Year 2022 Tech Trailblazer, and she was the youngest and first female recipient of the Rosenthal Award for Outstanding Contribution to the Field of Investment and Finance for her work with the late Dr. Laser, former U.S. Chief Economist, and Dr. Michael Spence. Additionally, she holds several patents as a highly sought-after speaker, publishes numerous articles, papers, and blogs. Artie, it's great to see you again. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Rebecca. I'm so excited to be part of your Soulful CXO series. Your background is amazing. You've come from product, you come from sales, you come from technology, you're data scientists. How did you get to be the person that you are today and the award-winning CEO? Thank you for asking. So I have an interesting and non-typical journey And uh, I'll give you the quick two-minute summary of it. And if any portion sounds more interesting than the others, I can share gory details. Um, So I am a PhD dropout. I'll start with that. So uh, I'm from India. And culturally, we strive our hardest to study as much as we can, as fast as we can, go as far as we can. And in that spirit, I applied to a PhD straight out of a three-year undergraduate program. And I was very proud of myself for getting getting in and coming to the U.S. to do that. And I'm a mathematics person by education. So I was going to be uh, doing modeling and, you know, quantification of businesses. Uh, So I was trying to overlap you know, the theoretical with the practical uh, in in that PhD. Uh, And I did about a year and a summer in the PhD, uh, at which point I realized that I did not want to be a teacher. So there was a lot of academic, academia outcomes from there. And it took a lot of personal courage to drop out. And uh, I did that. And that's, I believe, when I grew up. And I decided to focus on, you know, finding what interests me as opposed to, you know, doing as much as I can and going as as far as I can. Uh, And I ended up graduating with a business degree with an MBA and I got into management consulting. And my idea there was, you know, now that I feel like I'm back to the beginning, I'm trying to understand who I am after being down a path. 
So why don't I give myself an opportunity to explore? And what management consulting gives you is an opportunity to see lots of different industries and solve problems. And that's where I fell in love with technology. So my first project at AMS, which was the fifth, they used to be the big five back then, accounting firms, uh, consulting firms, and AMS out of Virginia uh, put me on a data warehousing project for the FDIC. And I did that. I was like the bottom of the, you know, heap. I was doing, I was an analyst. So that didn't even have, you know, much of a title. Uh, and I learned all about, uh, you know, large scale data technologies and how to map customer requirements to what needed to happen in the product. And I was part of a really large team. Like, you know, there were hundreds of us on this project and it was a great place to learn. And back then companies would train you. You know, they would hire you out of college and they would train you. So I learned quite a bit there about information systems as well as technology. Uh, and then from there, I ended up uh, basically in my desire to move west. So imagine I came from India, you know, warm and tropical to Rochester, New York, which was very cold. I learned all about, you know, the snow and black ice. It was really pretty for the first few weeks. And then I was basically cold. Um, so I was trying to move west. And so from there to Fairfax, Virginia, and then I was looking to come to California and I joined um, a company that did uh, CRM consulting. They did implementations for products like Clarify and Siebel systems, which at the time were big. And so it rooted my interest in technology pretty strongly. Um, and I have this like yin and yang, like I like to learn new stuff, which you can do as part of an organization, but I also like to create stuff, which you have to do, you know, you have to go out on your own. And so I found that I'd learned some stuff and I wanted to combine it with my math and modeling passion. Uh, and I couldn't find that in a job. So I decided to create my own. And so I started my first company in 2000 and I started it with Dr. Lazier out of Stanford. And the way I knew him is that he wrote the textbook that I studied in college in India. So I didn't know anybody. And I'm here, you know, an immigrant. And I'm like, well, who am I going to call? So I called him and we hit it off and we started a company together. And so that was my first uh, startup. It was very much about combining technology, information systems and math. And we basically did large scale constraint optimization and not to kind of bore you with jargon, but basically we allowed companies to make important decisions that had lots and lots of factors. So like, how would you invest, you know, make a capital decision where you might have to optimize tax laws that go across, you know, lots of different countries or inside the U.S., lots of different states and things like that. So we did that for a while. That company uh, was acquired by Thomson Reuters. Um, and then um, I took five years off. I have two children and I had my two kids at the time. And I have a lot of respect for the women that are able to work while going through that. I was not one of them. I was uh, I had a, I was very challenged <laughs> to actually be working and doing that. And so I took some time off and then I came back to the workforce and I joined um, a, uh, a GRC company. So this was a risk vision. Um, and so you'll see, like, so my path is kind of like learn a little bit, take some time off, learn yourself and then come back in. So I did that for a few years, ended up at Symantec. Uh, and then this itch to start something, you know, 
got back into me and I wanted to apply the lessons I learned from the first startup. So in 2019, I started Titanium, which is again about, you know, a set of algorithms. And this time it was about encryption and making sure you can process data while keeping it encrypted. Uh, And I've been doing that for a few years now for, uh, we changed the company's name recently, but it's been quite a journey, both of self-discovery, learning technologies, understanding how to apply things that I'm passionate about to solve problems that people care about. And I have my good days and my bad days. Today's a good day. I think people care about what we do. So uh, I'm going to stop talking now, but that give you a sense. Yeah, it actually does. I find it interesting that throughout your story, you've you've had times which you had to stop what you were doing. Like you said, you had your family, you moving over from India, but each and every time you had the courage to reach out to others to help you. I would tell you, I never would have thought about, here's a textbook. Let me go ahead and reach out to the person for the textbook. So what is it a, about you that gives you the courage to do that? Is that from your family? Is it one of those things where you're like, hey, the worst thing that happens is I can say no. What is it that, that drives you to just go ahead and take a chance and reach out to people to be mentors and helpers of yours? That's such a wonderful question. So I went to boarding school when I was nine years old and I did not come back home after that. Now, that's not because my parents don't love me. They love me a lot. But my father was a pilot in the Air Force and he was a, he flew fighter planes and the, the you know, course of training and moving, et cetera. I changed about six schools before I even got to fourth grade. And so my parents sent me away because, again, India, right, care a lot about education and they wanted their kids to have that. So if you're on your own since age nine, then you have to learn to fend for yourself. And I think part of what my dad taught me is that, you know, life can be really short. And if you have an idea, no one's going to solve that problem for you. And he was like, well, you know, we're forced to send you guys out on your own. So be sure to be advocate for yourself and try to reach to reach for things you you want. And so it's been one of those, you know, if I'm not going to do it, no one's going to do it for me since I was very little. Um, so that's that's my story. I literally never stayed home since that age. And then I also was in that, you know, it didn't feel like much of a stretch to come by myself to the United States from India because, you know, I'd been doing that for a while. So I credit my my parents and circumstance for that. Uh, but I'm very happy to be who I am. I don't, uh, I'm very close to my parents, even though they sent me away at like, age nine. <laughs> we love you, but go away. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was like, you send us away. But on the other hand, right? Like they were, they did it for a good reason and we all ended up okay. So yeah, they, they did it for the betterment of you, but they didn't abandon you. They still kept in contact, which is great. Yes. Yes. So did you have mentors or sponsors along the way or did you seek them out or did you do people run into you and say, hey, I, I see that your person wants to learn. And so I'll take you underneath the wing. How did that journey go? So always the farmer always reached out and asked. And I think I've been quite fortunate that nine times out of 10, people are really receptive. And so it's been it's been really wonderful. Like back in the Liquid Engines days, uh, when I reached out to Ed Lazier, we ended up pulling in two more Nobel Prize winners into our fold and they were investors and they were partners. And I think it goes from one to the other. Like if you take a first step to reach out and you get some reciprocity, then that is just something that spreads like a web. So I've always done that. Um, 
And I never worry about being the stupid one in the room. So that's the thing, right? I just, like I said, you know, when you're in, you leave home when you're young, you just kind of become immune to a lot of that judgment that people might make on you and you just ignore it. <laughs> so, so I always reach out everywhere. I find it interesting. I have people who reach out to me for being a mentor and things like that. And and I'll drive, follow up with them and they disappear. I, I think that's kind of wrong. I mean, it means that someone else is supposed to be in my life. But how do you go ahead and determine who to reach out to, who not to reach out to, and who do you determine to mentor? Because we don't have time for everybody, but I do think there's those golden opportunities. You need to take care of that golden opportunity when it arises and when it crosses your path. Yeah. So the, those are really amazing questions. So I always, when I, by the time I reach out to somebody, I'm pretty clear on what I need. And it's usually more than advice, right? You can get advice in many different ways. I'm not saying advice is a bad thing, but I'm usually looking for some type of partnership. And I've thought about, you know, what that might look like. I have visualized it. And so I want to, uh, you know, so, so when I actually have that call, I have a proposition. You know, I learned about you in this way. This is your background. This is my background. I have this idea. I think we could partner and do it this way. Here's why I think it would be amazing for you. And here's why I think it's amazing for me. And let me tell you about myself. And I'll focus on, you know, what kind of person I am and what kind of partner I would make. And so when I ask, and then they have the opportunity to say yes or no, because they know exactly, you know, what is being asked. And nine times out of 10, it's interesting enough. And I get a yes. If I don't get a yes for their time, I get some assistance. I get a push and it works out. I think where things fall flat is if you're like, oh, this person could be amazing. Let me reach out. And then nobody knows what to expect. So I feel like it's pretty concrete when I reach out. And the same is true on the other side. If someone reaches out to me and I know what I can do to help them, and that's not a big discovery for me, I'm able to reorganize my life and make that commitment. And most of the time, people just need a little push. Like even if it's somebody that needs a job, an internship or something, if I have it, I will give it uh, as long as, you know, obviously, as long as they look sincere and they, they're going to. Um, yeah. And, and I and I feel like like mentorship is easy. Sponsorship is hard. Right. So I kind of try to transition from words to action. And that yeah, answer your question. Yeah, it is. And. There's a difference between a mentor and a sponsor and finding golden sponsor is ideal. But when you have mentors, what's the reason, you know, Jim is a mentor of mine, but I can call him for those quick sanity checks. Hey, I'm having a challenge with here. They want X. I don't know. I don't understand the words are coming out of their mouth. <laughs> you yeah. know, can you help me understand? That's, that's a different, that's a mentor. They're great. Yeah. Um, but that's not a sponsor. How did you find your your first sponsor? Because that takes that's different, right? That's almost like yeah. that best best of best of friends. Everyone says, "Oh, we're friends because we have TikTok." It's no, you don't. Yeah. You have people who you know you know virtually, but it's different. How do you find that sponsor? Because I need to find one. Um, I you know it is hit or miss. I think you have to put yourself out there. So I, I, in fact, I do more of that than anything else. Like I spend like a third of my time just reaching out to new people because 
you know, the world is changing so fast. The opportunities are being formed so quickly and everybody needs to grow. So I do a lot of that. And I, I don't even keep track of who doesn't get back to me. But those who do, we usually end up, you know, with a productive relationship. So my first real sponsor was Ed, uh, when, you know, the author of that book in Stanford. Uh, and we we partnered up. We like literally were 50-50 owners in our company and that was very real. He sponsored, he helped me get a visa through the company. It was like a real thing, right, for me. So I'm trying to think if I can come up with anything meaningful in terms of how I went about it. And, and unfortunately, I think there's no shortcut to just trial and error. Does that is I know it's not a very satisfying answer, but that's my answer. Yeah, I think one of the the, the underlying golden nuggets there is when you're authentic and true to yourself and you know where it is that you want to go, then your eyes are more open to see other like-minded individuals. And so when you reached out to Ed, he probably very quickly could pick up, this is a person who's on the same path as me. They might be a little bit behind me on the path in certain ways, and maybe in certain other areas, they're ahead of me on the path, but you can line it. I think that's golden. I think that's one of the things is, is, People will reach out to me and they're like, hey, I, I want mentorship. And they don't. They really want me to look at their resume and then can you give me a job? And I'm like, I don't even know who you are because your resume is written so badly. So yeah. let me give you some help on, on clarifying your resume. That's different from having a mentor or a sponsor. So how did you find clarity in where you wanted to go in your life, at least for that next step. Because the other thing that you mentioned throughout um, our talk is that those steps have changed. And I tell people, it's okay. Where you wanted to be five years ago might not be the person that you want to be in the next five years. And it's okay. You don't have to hold on to the past because the past is behind you. You want to go forward. And a lot of people get stuck there. Yeah. So I have, uh, and this might be like a contrarian view to what most people do. So I think it's all about people and their values. So I find that if I can connect with someone on the type of human being that they are, we can do amazing things together. And for me, that's a first filter always. And so, you know, so I will put out my genuine person and, you know, what I stand for, how I think, what I believe, you know, a little bit of good and bad. And it's like got nothing to do with technology or, you know, where, where I'm trying to go. And if I find and that you can you can find out in a few minutes if you and this other person are kind of like, you know, human beings that can be creative, productive together. So once we make that connection, then it's it's not hard to share some ideas and understand but i don't mean i don't want to spend my time with people that i don't think i i want to be around so for me that's a first filter and that could be a mentor for me or that could be somebody i'm mentoring and after that you know it's it's a very quick discovery process and i know i didn't really answer what you said about you know whether someone's going to be wasting your time or not um the other thing I do is uh, once I establish this is somebody that, you know, I like is it like is really bad. It's like I only work with people I like. That's not what I mean. But if we can connect in values, then I will do everything I can to help them. And it may not be me who's the right fit, but I will connect them with somebody who is. And I will already prepare my contact to say, hey, this is a good person. This is one like us. 
And that way, you know, you can kind of get into the network and, uh, and people do that for me as well. So if we get along and they, you know, we connect on some level, they'll be like, well, I'm not the right person for you, but my friend here is, and you won't believe how many times I get on a call and person will say, oh, any friend of blah is a friend of mine. And that to me is like amazing. So I go from one to the other. I agree with you. Carolyn Wong or Teresa Payton or something like that reaches out and goes, hey, Rebecca, I know you're going to have a strong connection with this person. I do it all the time. I It's like, yeah. it, it's that it's that way. You know, yeah. one of the, the key points I think you also mentioned too is, is taking that moment to really listen to your inner voice. I'm going to put it in Rebecca's voice. Um, yeah. this, I'm not quoting you directly, but listening to that inner spirit on, am I connecting with this person? Am I not connecting to this person? And do I know of a person that they can better connect with? Let me connect them. And I think one of the reasons that we have such high turnover rate right now, especially in the, the CISO world, namely, but there's also CIOs and CTOs and stuff like that who, who are turnover too, is that we get that inner voice who says, no, these are not your people. This is not your culture. No. But you know, we look at that paycheck and we rush in and then we have to rush out. And I think people would be better served to listen to that inner voice. Is that something as well that you learned from your family? Or is that something that you learned from the school of hard knocks? I people, I got, I got wrinkles for a reason. It's a school of hard knocks for me. The latter, very much the latter. And this happens in every situation, work, partnerships, business, investors, you know, you have a goal, you're like, oh my gosh, there's all this money, you know, being offered to me. And somewhere inside, you know, these are not people you want to be in the same room with, really, not if things are not going well. When things are going well, everyone is your friend. When things are not going well, you kind of want, and you do it anyway, because, hey, you know, it's meeting the uh, the the goals on paper and it never works out. <laughs> It never works out. So the older I'm getting, the more like I'll now write write it down. Lessons learned. Do not. And I'll tell my friends and we, my team, because we actually stay together. So, you know, the team I have now is our people I worked with before. And we tell each other next time we are not, you know, if one of us has this kind of feeling and inkling, we are not going to say yes. But it's a constant learning process. And you just don't say no often enough. I don't say no often enough. I wish I did. And I know it's hard. Like, you know, for example, back when I was on a visa, I was completely beholden to, you know, the employer and the relationships I had to maintain. And it was really difficult to, to swallow that, but you had to. And now that I don't have that compulsion, I just have bad habits. Well, I do it because like I did it for so many years. So, you know, still a lot of growth there for myself as well. Oh, that's when you, you can have good friends or good mentors or really good co-people around you who are there to protect you. Because that's the yeah, one thing. Right. Don't I, forget. I tell, yeah, I'm always like a, a coach and a mentor that way by nature. Yeah. And I tell people the one thing is about if you think from a team aspect is you need to have each other's back all the time. I'm not saying you need to hide mistakes. I'm not saying that way. But if you see that someone's about to walk into a bad situation, they're about to walk in the wall, they're about to walk off a cliff, you don't sit back with popcorn and watch it. 
you would stop that. And that's what I look at when I'm building teams is I look at people who, not that they're perfect, but they're analytical, critical thinking, and that they have a bigger mindset to go ahead and do the greater good by their team, by the company, by the people we serve as our clients, protecting the data. Is that what you do as well when you're building teams? That's why I noticed that it, it ripples down to the people I want to have around me and my team as well. Very much so. And this is going to sound like we don't give other people opportunities. We do, but we definitely love to grow through the network. Good people know good people, good people refer good people and watching each other's back, making sure that we don't repeat mistakes. That's a wonderful way to like, you know, perpetuate good culture as well as grow the team. So we definitely do that for sure. And I, I also feel like, you know, at some point, and this is even less true in COVID now, we used to have the separation between work and personal. And I feel like we spend so much of our time working. I think that separation actually doesn't help us. It hurts us. If if we allow it to mingle a little bit and be ourselves at work, we're just happier, more fulfilled people. And now with COVID, it's even more so, right? We're literally in our homes for the last few years. And so personal and business is mixed as well. So I feel like just having that the same mindset as work that you have for yourself personally, in terms of what kind of space, what kind of people is really valuable. And I just said in a very long way, what you said elegantly in one <laughs> sentence. <laughs> I agree with you is what I'm saying. There we go. Yes. We have a lot of fear, uncertainty and doubt, especially in technology. Yeah. Uh, and generative AI is is taking our jobs. And it is, let's be honest, it is taking, it is yeah. taking jobs. Um, the one thing that I remind people is it's programmed. Okay. It's not, it's not perfect. Yeah. Where, do, where do you see generative AI going in the next three, four or five years? And, and do you see high risk with it in the technology field? Because I know that's one of your specialties. I actually think it will create more jobs than it will take. Uh, I think that the number of problems that can be solved and the speed at which it can be solved is going to be enormous. And so I feel like what we're being faced with is an upskilling problem. I think the net gains in productivity, in product, in services is going to be way more than loss of jobs. But what we have to do, just like every new technology shift, is we have to upskill, we have to train people. Now, the wonderful thing about AI is it can actually train people as well. And the rate at which the use of chat GPT and some of these early ones has gone, it's like it's evidence. There's like, you know, grandparents and kids and like, so the ease and accessibility is actually going to help with the upskilling problem. Um, so, so I feel like that, you know, that's what we're going to see in the, in the mid to long run. In the short run, what we have to do is figure out programs so that, you know, we can actually educate and inform people, make sure there's guardrails. So like, you know, while AI is still immature, it doesn't hurt people. You can't actually believe everything that an AI says at the moment because it can have disastrous consequences. So I feel like in the mid to long run, we're all going to be okay. Well, it's going to be better. In the short run, we have to deal with all these things. So like, for example, on the creative side, a lot of people are really concerned about content generation, creative uh, synthesis, right? So there's lots of concerns there. Definitely on the services side, there's lots of concerns there. Um, so 
I, I echo some of the fears, but I think that, you know, can we go back and say that the personal computer was not a positive thing? No. Can we go back and say the internet was not a positive thing? Not really. No. So I think in the grand scheme of things, it's, there's going to be some work. I think one of the things just with generative AI is people, the same thing as they, they think about when they use a search engine, that whatever it says is the truth. Yeah. Um, it's even with news media and everything else, just because someone happens to put it in writing, it's the truth. And people have to remember when you talk about any generative AI, if it's looking at a data set. Yeah. And not necessarily is the data set that was fed into it was 100% the truth. And so I'm with you. I think that there's going to be changing in positions on who is going to be the AI validation engineer, who's going to be the AI yeah. validation analyst, who's going to yeah. be things like that. So at a point in time that the information that's given that holistically as a society, we agree on that it that it should be the truth relative to the truth. And then how do you put guardrails that it doesn't start to you know, generate itself and generate falsehoods that then people are going ahead and believe. But like you said, we've had that with technology in the past and we have governments and there are people who are working on think tanks on, you know, as they say, the horses are out of the barn. How, yeah. do, we put, how do we put guardrails? I just wish as a society, we could like very quickly have guardrails. Yeah. Before we let, you know, we let things run. run so out. that I feel is completely true. I feel like it just fell upon us one fine day and it just took off like wildfire and we're all like running to catch up. Uh, and so tons of education is needed. And unfortunately, like humanity, this happens a lot, right? We all like, we win some, we lose some, we bumble along and then, you know, things fall in place and it's going to be like that. There are some use cases that are scary. So people looking at AI for information, that's scary. But people looking at AI to like automate mundane tasks, that's amazing, right? Like formatting, you know, outline generation, just like stuff that who likes to do that anyway, right? So so I feel like maybe some education on what you can do safely, what you shouldn't do, all of those is important. And I think the role of teachers, for example, I don't know if you saw the statistics and I forget what the source was. I'll try to, I'll try to post it later, uh, but they're finding that teachers make the best prompt engineers. Were you aware of this? Like elementary school teachers. No, it makes sense though, because they have to communicate with a variety of kids and parents who are at different levels. Yes. Um, so they actually make sense. Yes. And so like AI at the moment is like an elementary school, right? You have to ask it the right way. And if it doesn't right, give you the right answer, you have to like form your question again. And so there's there's like a lot of places where teachers are being hired and that's a brand new profession. In fact, it uplifts that profession so beautifully, right? Teachers do such important work and they're typically not the most well compensated. And to go from there to be able to jump into a field that's like hot and pays really well to use those skills. That's an amazing, um, amazing little piece of data, I thought. That's great. Unfortunately, our time has just flown by. Yes. What's the best way for people to reach out for you for speaking engagements, learn more about you and to learn more about your company? Thank you for asking. So I'm very accessible on LinkedIn. So it's Arthi Aurora Raman. I'm easily findable. You can also email me at Arthi, A-R-T-I at portal26.ai. So I think I'm one of the few people that has the first name and, and the domain. So I'm uh, that's coveted and awesome. 
Uh, but yeah, happy to, to take calls and, and network and be available as a resource myself. Artie, thank you so much for being on the show. You are a soulful CXO. Oh, thank you. Love that. Thank you for having me. Such a pleasure meeting you again and being on your show. I love what you're doing. It serves the community really well. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Soulful CXO Podcast with Dr. Rebecca Wynn, part of the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then add this show to your favorite podcast player. Subscribe to the ITSP Magazine YouTube channel and share the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to connect your brand to our conversations and our audience, visit ITSPMagazine.com to learn how to sponsor one or more of our shows. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.